The following audio is from Grace Fellowship of Westerville. To learn more about our church, please visit our website at www.gracefcwesterville.org. Ongoing repentance, what's going on in their lives. And we're going to look at Jacob. You know, sometimes I get really tired of this Christian stuff. One trial after another. I trust Christ. I believe what the word of God says. But when things start to go good, it's like the rug gets pulled out somewhere else. Do you ever feel that way? I mean, if you're really honest with yourself, we find Jacob right there in this place. If, if you'll turn to Genesis chapter 42, and I want to look at verse, just a couple of verses, 36 through 38. And Jacob, their father, said to them, You have bereaved or deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Then Reuben said to his father, well, Kill my two sons if I do not bring him back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. But he said, my son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead, and he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. Everything is against him. Now, you can just feel the spirit of this poor man. His beloved Joseph is gone, is all he knows, dead. And now Simeon is locked up in a prison. And now they want to take the last child, the last one of his beloved wife. And he's angry. He's frustrated. Jacob was feeling sorry for himself when the brothers returned from Egypt, reporting that they had been challenged by the prime minister. The prime minister was Joseph, of course, but they didn't know this. And they obviously didn't know the motives behind what Joseph was doing. He put Simeon in prison and demanded that they should bring to him their youngest brother, Benjamin, to prove that they were honest men. And when Judah and Reuben and the others told their father they could go back to Egypt or couldn't go back to Egypt unless they had Benjamin with them, Jacob complained furiously. He's not going to let him go. In verse 36, he said, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And now you take Benjamin. All this has come against me. Why me? We have here three levels in this story of hearts. We have Joseph, who is so in tune with God who has such a strong relationship with God that no matter what happens to him, good or bad, he remains focused on God, knowing that God is in control. Then we have the brothers who could care less about God. They're absorbed in themselves, their own appetites, their own lusts, their own desires. And then somewhere in the middle, we've got Jacob. Jacob has certainly made his mistakes over the years, but he has seen God work in his life. He's trusted God, but yet he's right where so many Christians are this morning. 
wanting to believe, but when things don't go the way we want them to, our faith struggles. In fact, I think if, if Jacob knew our popular children's song, Jesus Loves Me, he'd have probably sung it, No one loves me, this I know, my misfortune tells me so. You ever feel that way? And then the chapter ends with Jacob's holding out against what was eventually going to become a necessity. And so my first point this morning then is, are we a negative example? I think we are often like Jacob when we complain that everything is against us. And at times we are just as laughable. Circumstances fail to treat us right. Something, someone says something against us or some relationship struggles and it seems like nothing has ever gone right in our entire lives. Is this the kind of witness that we're going to bear for God? Is this the way we are going to dis, uh, disgrace the summons that he has given us to stand and be a holy witness to the world around us? You see, when the struggle gets us down, it has now become about me. When the struggle gets you down, now it becomes about you and not God and what he's doing. And it should be perfectly evident this morning as we treat this brief parenthesis in the story of God working in the brothers to take a look at Jacob, that I'm going to hold up Jacob as a negative example. I'm going to say to you, don't be like Jacob. But before I do that, I want to show that although he was wrong in saying that everything is against me, he was not entirely wrong and recognized it, that there are sinful things against us. And we need to be honest about this this morning. There are sinful things against us. True, they are usually not what you and I might think of when we're in a despondent state. We feel that things are not working out for us. And we should know that things really are working out for us. Because we know that all things work together for good to those who love God. Amen? Romans 8.28. But although things are controlled by God and are used by him to our benefit, nevertheless, there is an enemy seeking our destruction. Traditionally, the church has spoken of these three as the world, the flesh, and the devil. The world is not for us. The flesh attacks us from within. And the devil would drag us down to hell if he was able. So it is good for us to keep in mind that there are goals that we face that want our destruction. When we think, first of all, of the world in the sense of being a spiritual opponent to us, we're not thinking about the world as the earth or even the people of the world. We're going to refer to the world system. In fact, Jesus referenced this in John 15, 19, when he said, if you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. There is a natural dislike for Christians. And if you haven't seen that, then you've been living out in the boonies the last few years as it becomes more and more and more vocal of what's going on. The world operates according to its own goals and its values rather than the values of God. 
The world is always trying to compel Christians to be like them. And this is why the Apostle Paul wrote in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is the good and acceptable and perfect. You see, the critical thing here is when Paul says, don't be conformed, he just doesn't leave it there. He says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. You know, I'm amazed when I talk to people who are struggling and, and they don't have a direction and they don't know what God is doing and why doesn't God reveal his plan? And so I'll ask them, I'll say, well, what are you reading in your devotions? Uh, I don't have devotions. <laughs> well, okay, well, when you read your Bible during the week, well, I really don't read my Bible. Well, then how can you be transformed by the renewing of your mind? You see, the way God works with his people is when he draws you to him and saves you, he gives you the Holy Spirit that guides you into all truth. And that Holy Spirit uses the word of God. So if you are struggling, the number one thing I'll tell you to do is get into the word of God and start discerning the will and the leading and what he's trying to do in and through your heart. And then there's the flesh. The flesh is what we carry about in ourselves. And flesh does not refer to the soft matter that covers your bones any more than world refers to the earth. In the sense in which we are using the word here, in which the Bible uses it when it speaks of the sins of the flesh, flesh means earthly nature of man apart from divine influence. Let me say that again. The flesh means earthly nature of man apart from divine influence. So apart from the intervention of divine grace, the, the flesh nature is utterly disposed to sin and is always in rebellion against God. If you question that, just remember how you feel the first time things go wrong. Do you react in peace and trust? Or would you like to say something to God about it? You see, it's that our first reaction is usually fear, anger, or even frustration. Not, okay, God, you must be up to something. I can't wait to see what you're going to do. And you see, that was the heart of Joseph. He was hated. He was going to be murdered. He was sold into slavery. And what did he do? Well, I can't change my circumstances. I'm going to be the very best slave I can be. And then after all that, he's falsely accused and thrown into prison. And what does he do? I'm going to be the best prisoner. I mean, you and I look at that and go, come on. Seriously? The world says I'm to stand up for myself. But God is working in Joseph. And because of the deep, heartfelt relationship he had with God, he could endure anything this world threw at him. Because he knew God was in control. We're prone sometimes to just fly off. And then, of course, in Galatians, Paul outlines <clears throat> what, what it is the flesh craves. It says, beginning of verse 19, Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, and on and on it goes. When you think of the brothers, that verse is them in a nutshell. Because the brothers were guilty of sexual immorality. 
They were certainly guilty of enmity and strife and jealousy. That's why they got rid of Joseph. Almost everything listed in that section of the Bible, the brothers were guilty of. But then the third of these, the classic opponents to the Christian, is the devil. Peter described him in 1 Peter 5, 8, be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. He is actively seeking your destruction. And the problem is often as Christians is we just, we're just so chummy with the world, we don't see it coming. You know, this was really brought home to me in a very staggering, and, and, I, and I hesitated to share this example because some of you have nightmares tonight, because I did, but I'm gonna share it anyway, because it really gets the point across. And some of you may have read this story, but you know, a lot of people have pet boa constrictors. I don't know why, I don't get it, but they do. And this one woman had this very, very big boa constrictor and she was so friendly with it, it seemed so good that she got to where she slept with it. Yeah, no, no joke. But something happened that the last couple of nights, instead of the snake coiling, it was stretched out perfectly long along her body. And she thought that was kind of odd. So she took it to the vets. And the vet's eyes got like this. He said, don't you understand what's happening? Well, no. He's stretching out to make sure he can swallow you. He's getting ready to eat you. You would look at that woman and go, are you crazy? But how many Christians walk with the world ignorant of Satan's plan to destroy you? The world wants to destroy you. That's why he says, don't be conformed to the world, please. Be conformed to Christ. Be in the word to recognize what's going on. Be able to have the mind that sees and understands everything that's happening. Know when your adversary is after you. Trust Christ. And that only comes from being in the world and allowing the Spirit to build that relationship that you understand. And as Peter, as Paul says in Philippians, so you can have the mind of Christ. That's really available to us. And this is what the devil does. He seeks to destroy. In other words, you can count on the fact that temptation is coming. Because the devil is such an imposing enemy, and because he has already been introduced to us in Genesis as he tempted Eve and Adam, we can be sure that he will tempt us to go against God at every chance we can. We must also remember that, the God, that God said that he would send a redeemer through the chosen line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, but that he had not yet disclosed it through, through which of the 12 it would come, he would come through. And this is kind of fascinating to me because my guess is the devil must have thought it would be Joseph. I mean, he was the fair-haired child. So when the brothers threw him in the pit to murder him, Satan had the brothers in his back pocket. He thought he had probably triumphed, that this was it. 
But then God intervened through safety and prosperity for the young man. But here's the amazing thing, and don't miss this. And if this isn't an example of grace, I don't know what is. Because you see, the line of the Savior would not come through Joseph or Joseph's son. The line would come through Judah, the vilest of all the brothers. Can you imagine that? God was bringing to faith through these, these incidents and these situations to draw those brothers to repentance. And it was Judah who was the one that he was going to come through. In the very next chapter, it is Judah who leads the other brothers in putting himself in line to protect Benjamin. So Judah... The vilest of brothers figures into the line of Christ. If you remember when we were in the book of Joshua studying, Rahab the harlot was in the line of Christ. You know what that tells us? God doesn't use sinless people because there's no such thing. And God will use you no matter who you are. You can trust the amazing grace of God because he sheds his grace on all who come to him and live for him. Jacob said, everything is against me. He was not right in saying that because actually everything was perfectly for him. But like so many of us who focus on the problem, he fell prey to the influence of his flesh, just like we do when things get turned upside down. And he didn't trust what God was doing. And because of this, my next point flows right into this as I've taken it from Romans 8.31. If God before us, who can be against us? How could Jacob have said such a thing? True, he was being opposed by forces of the world, the flesh, and the devil. But had he forgotten God? Had he entirely forgotten the one who had appeared to him in Bethel? Jacob had gone to sleep, and God appeared to him in a dream. And in just back in Genesis 28, verses 13 through 15, the Lord stood above and said, "'I am the Lord, the God of Abraham, your father.'" And the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie, I will give to you and to your offspring. Your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and, and your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go. And will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. You see, it's having a relationship with the God that transforms, it's trusting God to bring you the peace. It is having a God like this that transforms opposition for God's people. For it is not that we do not face spiritual enemies. We do. And the testing is often very, very difficult. It's rather that we have a God who is greater than any of the circumstances we face. Do you believe that? That's what he promises in his word. I can't help thinking of the wonderful story of Elijah's successor, Elisha, 
and the young man who was, who was Elijah's servant. You recall the story. It's set in a time of war in which the king of Aram had been fighting against the king of Israel. And the Aramean, um, not the Armenians, the Arameans were stronger and would have defeated them. Except when they made a plan, God told Elisha, and Elisha told the king, and the king redirected his men. So every time they set a trap for them, God would share the plan with Elisha and he the king, and they'd go another way. And it got so it happened so often and got to be such a problem that the king knew somebody was betraying him. So he called all his officers together and he wanted to know what was going on. And one of his <clears throat> officers said to him in 2 Kings 6, 12, I just love this. None of my, none my Lord, O king, but Elisha the prophet who is in Israel tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. Can you imagine what he thought? The whispers, the plans he makes in his secret, Elijah knows them. So when the king heard this, he determined to capture Elijah and thus stop him from conferring with the king. So when he learned that Elisha and his servant were in Dothan, which, by the way, is the very place that Joseph went to meet his brothers when they threw him in the pit, the king went to Dothan by night and surrounded the entire city. And in the morning, his servant got up to go out and get water. And as he went out, he saw these armies all around the city. And I could just see him dropping his water pot and running to Elisha, saying, my Lord, my Lord, what are we going to do? We're surrounded. They're everywhere. But Elijah, he stayed calm. He basically told his servant to get his eyes off the enemy and put them on God. And in 2 Kings 6, 16, he said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And then he asked God to open his servant's eyes to see God's armies. And you know the story, when he opened his eyes, he saw the hills full of chariots of fire and soldiers that far outnumbered them. And then God caused blindness to fall on the Aramean armies. And Elisha led them in their blindness into the city of Samaria as captives. You know, as a pastor, every day I pray that God would open your eyes to see the God we serve. The same God who worked with Elisha and his servant, it's the very same God who is in you. And Hebrews tells us he doesn't change. He says, I change not. So what is it that surrounds you this morning? Is it the world with its temptations? Is it just the flesh with its lusts? The devil with his malicious hatred and enmity against you? It doesn't matter. Because those who are with us are far more than those who are against us. But you say, my life is in shambles. Don't forget that greater is he that is in you than he that is in the world. But Lord, Joseph is no more. Simeon is no more. And they would take Benjamin. Those who are with us are more 
than those who are with them. You only need one, and his name is Jesus Christ. And he's the great redeemer and the protector and the savior when you come to him. I want to take you to Romans chapter 8 because Paul kind of takes all of this and he just consolidates it down in one of the most magnificent declarations in the entire Bible. In Romans chapter 8, he says, beginning at verse 32, he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Listen, the very God who loved you enough to give up his son and send him to earth to take on the form of man and then to die on the cross to save you? Do you think for one minute he's not going to give you what you need? Do you really think that the God who loves you with his life is not going to provide what you need to get through? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is, who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, who is raised? Who is at the right hand of God? Indeed, is interceding for us. He gave up his son. He saved you. He'll keep no good thing from you to protect you. And by the way, he sits right next to the Father praying for you every day. How can we lose when we have that kind of God? How can we lose? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? It is as it is written, for your sakes we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to the slaughter. Look, if a sword can't separate you and famine and danger, Christians are dying every day and they're not separated from God. Because even in death, we're more than conquerors. No, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Every single trial makes you a conqueror when you let God be God. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. The problem is, we equate a singular now problem as bigger than life. And we forget that life itself is in the hands of God. So, I understand that with all the struggles that are laid out before us, we're weak. I mean, we got to be honest, right? We're weak. So my last point is, our God is the God of the weak. If you are feeling defeated, don't beat yourself up. God knows you're weak. He understands that in our flesh, we struggle. You don't have to go any farther to see this than the life of the great prophet Elijah. You remember the story with Elijah when he went toe-to-toe with the priests of Baal? He challenged them. He said, you build an altar, I'll build an altar. You call down fire from your God, I'll call down fire from my God. We'll see who's God. 
And so you know the story, they, they built a, 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 an altar and they had the most dry, flammable wood they could find. And they began to pray and they prayed and they prayed and they were calling down fire and they prayed and they prayed and all day long, all night long. Finally, they started cutting themselves, just excruciatingly crying. Nothing happened. And Elijah says, okay, it's my turn. He says, you know, before I get going though, Soak that altar down with water. I mean, he had it so soaked down, it was like your backyard right now. I mean, drenched. The trenches were full of water. Everything was just absolutely drenched. And he called down fire from God. And Jehovah sent fire down. It burned up the altar. It burned up the water. It burned up the stones. There was nothing left. Talk about amazing faith and trust in God. But... Like so many of us, at the end of some great struggle, Elijah felt discouraged. This very same man that went toe-to-toe heard that Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel threatened to kill him for killing all the false prophets. So he flees. He runs away in fear. In 1 Kings 19.10, he says, I have seen very jealous, I have been very jealous of for the Lord the God of hosts. For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, and killed your prophets with a sword. And I, even I only am left, and they seek my life to take it away. This is the same guy that just triumphed toe-to-toe. And now he's, woe is me, hiding in a cave, defeated. We can get that, can't we? God knows that. He knows we're weak. And finally, Elijah found out that God had Ahab replaced. And by the way, there were 7,000 righteous men that were there. He didn't see them because he's focusing on the problem. And it's exactly the way it is for you and I today. We don't see God because the problem has absorbed everything in us. Do you ever feel alone? Like you're trying to live the life that you should, but one more struggle comes, one right after the other. Are you like Jacob? Everything's against me. I get up, I get knocked down. I get up, I get knocked down. Let me just leave you with one very clear statement. And this is very important to help you understand this. Once the soul has tasted Christ's love, it can never be satisfied with anything else. So when we focus on the problem, we eliminate the satisfaction. Our being down and is afraid is because we've stepped out of that satisfying love that we're living ourselves. Once you've tasted the grace of God, nothing else satisfies. Jesus said that in this world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I've overcome the world. Your problems and struggles are real. 
You can't minimize them. They're very real. We can't push them aside. But God is greater than anything you face. And if one thing we've seen from Joseph, it's that very fact. From being hated, sold into slavery, hated by his family, falsely accused, thrown in prison, forgotten in prison. One day he's a prisoner, the next day he's prime minister of the greatest nation on the face of the earth. You may not become a prime minister, but hear me. You will find yourself in the lap of God's grace. And you will know that he is the one living through you. And once you've tasted that, there's no going back. That's why he must increase and we must decrease. And so now we come to communion. That amazing time when we put it all together and we're reminded very clearly of what was done for us. The bread represents Christ's broken body. The cup represents his blood shed for us. If you know Christ as your Savior this morning, we invite you to partake. If you don't know Christ, then don't partake. It's not for you. But it could be for you if you would accept his free grace, the love that he shed for you on the cross, the one who before eternity passed came and died for you, the one who is going to give you all things, the one who is going to sustain and direct you and stand at the right hand of the Father and pray for you. That's what you can have if you'd come to Christ. So as the men come to prepare, I'm going to ask you to bow your heads and your hearts. And before we take communion, I want you to be brutally honest with yourself this morning. Is Christ at the head of your life? Or are you living defeated? Ask God to speak to you this morning. Father, as we come to you right now, I'm constantly reminded at a time of communion how weak my faith is.
when I desire to see your hand in everything and yet find it so easy to take charge of my own life, never allowing you to be in complete control. Lord, I pray for all of us as we begin to partake, Lord, that that we would be reminded that your death on that cross not only secured our eternity, but our eternity began the moment we trusted you and you ever lived to make intercession for us. And your spirit lives within us to guide us into all truth. May we learn to live victorious now, even in the most difficult of circumstances. May you be praised. Lord, I just pray that you would be with us now as we begin this ceremony. In Christ's precious name.